Well, we want to turn in the Word of God now as we're considering still in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, a section in which uh, we continue to learn about the relationship between wives and husbands. And uh, here Peter is writing again. Peter is writing in the mid-60s, AD 65 or so, to a group of Christians who are scattered abroad because of persecution. And he shows them in this text in verses in chapter 2 and chapter 3 the relationships so that the relationships would be excellent stemming as I shared with you last week stemming from verse 12 that their, their, um, their example, their life may be excellent and their testimony may be good so that when others come to know Christ they will glorify God. And he's gone over their relationship to the government the relationship and employment. And last week we began in 1 Peter chapter 3, relationship within the family and marriage in particular. Chapter 3 of 1 Peter. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Let's pray before we begin once again our study in the Word of God. Father in heaven, we pray that you would grant to us insight and a heart open to your Word. So God, teach us. Teach me. Pray, God, that you would help us to understand that we might see great and mighty things your law. May you be honored, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Conflict is a part of every marriage. Conflict is a reality in life, and even though we would want every marriage to be harmonious and peaceful all of the time. There will always be disagreements. There will always be conflict of some type. No one wants to live in a family that's characterized by a war zone mentality. Unless, of course, you're like perhaps the man I'd read about in a CNN report. The news reported, quote from CNN, a man from Berlin, Germany, took an unusual approach in trying to bring peace to his marriage. CNN reported that the man was using an old air raid siren to stun his wife into submission. Quote, my wife never lets me get a word in edgeways, unquote. The man, identified as Vladimir R., told the police. So, 
I crank up the siren and let it rip for a few minutes. It works every time. Afterwards, it's real quiet again. The 73-year-old man's 220-volt rooftop siren was confiscated by police after neighbors filed complaints. As for his wife of 32 years, she said, quote, My husband is a stubborn mule, so I have to get loud, unquote. Well, all marriages face struggles and difficulties, disagreements and conflicts, and particularly when one is a Christian and one is not. And here Peter is addressing that particular scenario. That particular scenario where, in this case, a wife comes to know Christ and her husband is not a Christian, and there is potential serious conflict. And I shared with you last week about the potential abuse that may occur. And in light of that, Peter answers the question of how we're supposed to conduct ourselves. And last week we looked at the instruction for the wives to submit themselves to their husbands and what that means and what it doesn't mean. We also looked at what it means to have a chaste or pure life and what it means to show respect and that quality being especially important to husbands. All of these are important if they are going to win their unbelieving husbands as is referred to here in this context as described by disobedient to the word, a phrase that's used in the book of Second Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9 and the book of Hebrews 4, 2 to refer to those who do not know God. We looked at 1 Corinthians 7 in the context of what happens when one comes to know Christ, how their spouse is sanctified by them and how their children are sanctified by them when they come to know Jesus as their Savior. Because they bring into the family godly values, godly thinking, godly perspectives. And that is such a blessing. And it is a matrimonial or a familial sanctification because they bring with them the blessings of God rather than the philosophy of the world. It doesn't save anyone in the family because salvation is an individual choice. But with the influence of a godly attitude, a godly Christian wife will influence her children and family. And that is such a blessing. But now Peter turns to another aspect, and that is of ways in which to conduct oneself in dressing, in dressing one's heart in particular. So he goes on in verse 2, as we have read before, of our chaste and respectful behavior and the means, again, he addresses in verse 3. It reads, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding of hair, wearing of gold jewelry, or putting on of dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Now, the translators in, indicated here, as you see perhaps in your Bibles, may have inserted the word merely and it's italicized. It is an inserted word by the translators because it is implied, it is implied within the sentence there that one is not merely, it's not wrong to wear a dress, it's not wrong to wear jewelry. That's not what's being communicated by Peter here. But what is more important is the focus on the external appearance versus the internal appearance of the heart. After all, it says in Proverbs 31:22, with the external appearance of the godly woman in Proverbs 31, her clothing is fine linen and purple. When you read the Song of Solomon as well, it speaks of the woman who is well-dressed and wearing nice clothing. But the point of the passage is this. 
When too much attention is given to how one looks on the outside rather than how they look on the inside, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, it says. And the word gentle means humble or meek. The word for quiet spirit means to be still or tranquil, to be a person who has a still and tranquil heart. So the issue here is, or the question perhaps before you might be, how much time or energy or effort is putting in, put it into one's, the three things, for example, that are given here. One's hair, one's jewelry, one's clothing. How much time and expense are invested in, in the things that are external rather than the things that are internal of the person's heart. Or you might ask yourself, what do I enjoy more? Do I enjoy really looking at the new lines of clothing or the fashion magazines or what others are wearing perhaps? Or am I more interested and my heart gravitates more towards the things of God, music and the books or the references or things that will cause my heart to be beautiful? Would you rather spend time? For example, talking with a famous fashion designer or a well-known jeweler or some renowned cosmetician? Or would you rather your daughters know more about the things of God or the things of God's people or their spiritual character? What do you communicate by the things that you spend your time on? And the focus of things in which wives are to wear is not only found here but is also found in the book of 1st Timothy if you turn a few books back in the book of 1st Timothy it speaks of this chapter 2 in 1st Timothy chapter 2 Paul writes here in this pastoral epistle in which he gives instructions to Timothy Timothy is to instruct the church and here Timothy was sent to the church at Ephesus all by himself a young timid pastor and he tells this Young man, chapter 2, verse 8. Therefore, he says, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Then he says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, no one is saying that, well, you should completely ignore how you look. No one is saying that the best way to look is to look out of date or to look sloppy or slovenly or without any regard. No one is saying that you should be untidy or disheveled or scuttled in how you might appear. But Paul says here with proper clothing... Proper refers to cosmeo, from which we get the word cosmetics. It means to arrange, to make right, to make orderly, from that word. And so he's saying, well, you ought to wear proper clothing. And he writes about women who come to worship God. The first thing Paul writes about in that particular passage in 1 Timothy 2 is that he mentions braided hair. Now, does that mean that you can't uh, have your girls come in pigtails or that you can't have a ponytail or a French braid or whatever it might mean? No, I don't believe that to be the case. When you look into biblical history, you'll find that there were certain braids that were there, but what they would do is that they would dress their braided hair with all sorts of gold and silver, with shells or jewels in their hair. They'd stack a fortune on their head. You can imagine 
What would happen if you were sitting in, in church and there was somebody in front of you who had a very, very nice hairdo and on the back there were gold and silver and sparkly jewels and shells and all sorts of ribbons? How it would just be a distraction to one. You'd be counting up, boy, that's about a thousand, two thousand dollars they've got there versus worshiping the Lord. In those days, too, it mentions dresses. Dresses were expensive in New Testament times. Some would cost up to seven thousand denarii. And a denarii was a common day's wage for a common laborer. Sometimes it would be five hundred to eight hundred denarii. And so most women would only have perhaps a few dresses in their entire lifetime. And then men, would, they would have a jewelry. Jewelry that would hang from the neck and frame from the, the ankles and hang from their clothing. And today, of course, we have jewelry of all types pierced in all sorts of places. And so, Paul is writing here the principle. He says, what is the principle? The principle is this. Modestly, he says, and discreetly. Modestly and discreetly. The word for modesty appears only here in the New Testament. And it means modesty mixed with humility. One commentator writes this. At its core is the idea of shame. Godly woman would be ashamed and feel guilt if she distracted someone from worshipping God or contributed to someone's lustful thought. A woman characterized by this attitude will dress so as not to be the source of any temptation. The word also has the connotation of rejecting anything dishonorable to God. A godly woman hates sin so much that she would avoid anything that would engender sin in anyone. Unquote. In other words, how would you feel? How would you feel if someone noticed more so your outward appearance than your inward godly qualities? Or do you hate sin so much that you try to dress in such a way so that people won't be sinfully distracted by you from the Lord? Determining what's appropriate, you see, is also a matter of motive. What is the motive of the heart? One commentary notes this, quote, How does a woman discern the sometimes fine line between proper dress and dressing to be the center of attention? And the answer starts in the intent of the heart. Woman should examine her motives and goals for the way she dresses. Is her intent to show the grace and beauty of womanhood? Is it to show her love and devotion to her husband and his goodness to her? Is it to reveal a humble heart devoted to worshiping God? Or is it to call attention to herself and flaunt her wealth and beauty? Or worse... To attempt to allure men sexually. A woman who focuses on worshipping God will consider carefully how she is dressed. Because her heart will dictate her wardrobe and appearance. Unquote. The question is why? Why does one dress the way that they do? Now we don't have a dress code here in this church. I know that I dress the way that I dress. Because not only was I raised that way, that one should honor God in the way that I dress, and I don't look down or look up to others and how they dress, but for me, myself, oftentimes I'll stand and I'll remind myself, God, this is for you. I want to do it because I want to bring glory to you. And I remind myself consciously, not just out of tradition, because I feel that coming to worship God is an honor and a pleasure and a blessing. 
The question is, how and why do we dress the way that we dress? I remember my mother teaching me when I was a little kid, the night before a Sunday comes when you're going to worship the God of heaven, you should set out your clothes, she would tell me, and what you would wear the next day, because it's a reflection of our worship. That's what she would teach me or try to teach me. So the question is, why? What is the motive? Is it to attract the attention of others or worse yet, secretly hoping that others would notice me or notice someone else or or take note of how good I look? How would you feel if one became the center of attention by what they wear? Or do we feel badly if we've caused any attention to be drawn away from the Lord by the way that we dress? Or are we more concerned about our appearance and our clothing? Are we more concerned about our attitude and our character? Do we spend more time looking in the mirror or looking good? Or do we spend more time looking to the Lord and being godly? The focus is not to be on one's appearance, but it says in verse 10, rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So, if one is claiming to be godly, then let it be shown by your service to God, your good works, your deeds, how you treat others, that you've come to be a blessing, that your outward adornment is not an inordinate concern to you. Paul's concern here is that one not be a distraction to others, that the attention is not to be drawn away from God, but as in Peter says, that we focus on the imperishable qualities of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is what? Precious. Precious in God's sight. In our culture, it doesn't do that, does it? In our culture, compared to other, uh, to, to the, what the scriptures teach, our culture promotes immodesty. And the things that you see on television or on billboards or advertisements 50 years ago, it would have been considered very risque. And I have to say that it's the parents' responsibility oftentimes to guide and guard their children, especially those who are your daughters, to teach them what is appropriate, inappropriate to wear. That is the responsibility. People are to be primarily attracted to what? To whom God is, by whom they see of your heart and your life. Not some superficial, some shallow, some outward appearance of a people. Because as it speaks of the godly woman in Proverbs 31.30, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Then Peter gives the example in verses 5 to 6. For in this way, in former times... The holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. And he gives the example of Sarah. In case anybody was thinking, boy, this is unprecedented or I've never heard this before. He gives the example that, you know what? In biblical times in the past, there were people who dressed and they they conducted themselves in this way. With a hard attitude that is described here. With a gentle and quiet spirit. With the attitude of respect towards their spouse. And you say to yourself, well, what if, what if, what if that's so difficult because what if my husband makes a wrong decision or what if he takes advantage of me here? And Peter gives that phrase here that they do what is right without being frightened by any fear. There's no fear when we do what is right because the person we want to please is God. The person we want to please is God. 
And so he turns now, after addressing wives and the way they are to conduct themselves, he turns now to a command that is given to husbands in verse 7a. Verse 7, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir in the grace of life. The husband in the same way is a reference to the knowledge of the will of God. In the same way that wives know now the will of God and how they are to connect themselves, husbands now, as you do, know now how you should conduct yourselves. Live with them in an understanding way. And it says there a phrase that sometimes is often discussed as with someone weaker. What does that mean? Somebody who's weaker. Now, it's not somebody who is obviously morally or spiritually or intellectually weaker or not inferior in any way. So commentators have tried to think of what does it mean that Peter is referencing here. Most commentators think that it's a reference to some, perhaps the general physical weakness that many husbands would be able to overpower their wives and Peter's making a general statement here and obviously you and I both know that there are some I remember when I was in high school you'd walk along the side of the hall on the other side because there were some gals there could simply pummel me and there are others that write and they think well perhaps weaker might refer to emotionally weaker that they're more sensitive and guys are less sensitive and so in the position of, uh, of the role that the husband is not to be overbearing or harsh or cruel in his words. Or some think that perhaps it is in a different role of authority and therefore it is seen as perhaps a weaker role or whatnot and that the husband is not to be overbearing and to take advantage of the responsibilities that he has. But whatever it is, whether it's physically, emotionally, or authoritatively, the husband is to live in an understanding manner and to show her honor. Now, the subject of honor I want to spend a little bit of time on because, well, oftentimes people speak of love and cherish. But in many wedding vows, you vowed to love and honor and cherish. In the book, Love is a Decision, Gary Smalley outlines the top ten things that he has observed to be dishonoring in marriages. Because it's important many times for husbands to realize how they can dishonor their wife not to do them. He says these are some of the common things, ten in his experience. One, ignoring or degrading another person's opinions or advice or beliefs. Two, Burying oneself in front of the television or the newspaper when another person is trying to communicate. Three, creating jokes about another person's weak areas or shortcomings because that can do lasting harm. Four, making regular verbal attacks on loved ones, criticizing harshly, being judgmental, delivering uncaring lectures. Five, Treating in-laws or other relatives as unimportant in one's planning and communication. Six, ignoring or simply not expressing appreciation for kind deeds that are done for us. Seven, distasteful habits that are practiced in front of the family, even after we've been asked to stop. Eight, overcommitting ourselves to other projects or people. So that everything done outside the home seems more important than those inside the home. 
Nine, power struggles that leave one person feeling as if he or she is a child or being harshly dominated. Ten, an unwillingness to admit when we're wrong or to ask for forgiveness. Honoring is not those things. But what is honor? He writes in a book entitled Secrets to Lasting Love, quote, Honor is first and foremost a decision. It's a simple decision to place high worth, high value and importance on another person. To view him or her as a priceless gift and grant that person a position in your life worthy of great respect. Dr. Scott Stanley writes, I do not know of any long-term loving relationship that doesn't have honor. Honor is like gasoline to relationship. It's the lower your fuel gauge is, the less satisfying your relationship will be. Fascinating that Jennifer Rothschild, she has a DVD set called Fingerprints of God and at the age of 15, she had a degenerative eye disease that would leave her blind. And she shares the following story that shows one who honored his wife. It reads this way. It was a very crowded bus. All the passengers looked sympathetically as Susan made her way down the aisle. She fumbled with her cane and she nestled herself into her seat. The onlookers just watched with questions and concerns. You see, it had been a year since Susan lost her sight. When she first became blind, she fell into a deep pit of depression. Her world crumbled. Her sadness overtook her. Not only was her heart crushed, but so was the heart of her husband, Mark. He loved his wife so and wanted to help her, and he did that. Inch by inch, he helped her pull out of that pit of depression, helping giving her skills and confidence and to regain her sense of self. And that husband, so in love with his wife, did all he could help her into her new state of darkness. Well, after many months of Susan's blindness, she began to feel more confident because of Mark's help. And she felt like she could perhaps return to her job again. And Mark promised that he would help her. Of course, with that also. So every day, Mark would drive his wife to work, walk her into the office, make sure she was settled, and then leave and go to his base across town because Mark was a military officer. Then he would come back and get her from work. And this went on for several weeks. But with each passing day, though Mark so wanted to help his wife, the burden was becoming heavier because it was becoming logistically impossible for him to make it to his base on time. He dreaded having to announce to Susan that he wasn't going to be able to drive her to work. But in the end, he had to. I can't ride the bus to work, she replied. I'm blind. How am I going to know how many stairs there are? How am I going to know what path to take? I feel like you're abandoning me. Mark's heart was crushed. He promised her like he had done from the very beginning. He would do whatever it took to help get her to feel confident and independent on the bus. He helped her with the routes. He helped her learn the stairs and learn the paths. And so finally, after several weeks of doing such, Susan was confident. She went to his base. She went to his work. Morning, Monday. She got on the bus. She went to work. She came home. 
It was flawless. Then Friday morning arrived. Susan made her way onto the bus. And as she went to pay her fare, the bus driver said, Ma'am, you sure are lucky. Susan said, Are you talking to me? The bus driver said, Yeah. It must feel good to be cared for as you are. Susan replied, I don't know what you mean, sir. The bus driver said, Well, you know, every morning when I drop you off at your bus stop, as soon as those doors open, I can see that man standing over there at the corner and he watches you. As soon as you step off the bus, his eyes are on you and his eyes follow you as you walk across that parking lot. And his eyes don't leave you as you're trying to walk up those stairs. When your hand touches the doorknob, his eyes are on you until you open the door and go inside. That man doesn't take his eyes off you. And once that door closes, he stands straight and tall like a sentinel. And he salutes you. Then he blows you a kiss. Susan burst into tears and she had no idea that her husband had been watching her. But the lover of her soul never took his eyes off of her. Honor is something that is commanded of husbands to show their wives. And to show them honor. And to show them that they love them. As a fellow heir, it says, of the grace of life. Because in the Greco-Roman world, husbands would not view their wives as a friend. They would not view their wives as a life partner. They would view their wives as somebody who would take care of the home and raise the kids and to do what they said they would do, etc. They would not look at them as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And that is where the Ephesians reminds husbands to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, that his vision might be that, to say just as Christ would say to the Father someday, here is the church, I have purified the church for your glory. And so too the husband might be able to say in like respect, God, here is my spouse, here is my wife, the one whom I have kept pure and honored her in the grace of life. Paul reminds husbands their command and just as Christ humbly sacrificed himself for the church so too husbands are to show that sacrificial servant leadership in honoring their wives to salute them and to blow a kiss for them always watching about their lives. Why? It says in the last phrase so that your prayers will not be hindered so that your prayers will not be hindered Now, primarily, I'm thinking this passage refers to a husband who is praying for his unsaved wife because he has come to know the Lord. In the context, perhaps that is what it means. That he is not to treat his wife as some second-class citizen or some other person who is supposed to just take care of the home or raise the kids. His poor treatment of her will hinder his prayers. And that is the warning that is given to husbands. They are to show consideration and treat her as a fellow heir, showing her great honor, lest God not be attentive to them in their needs. So Peter writes here, instructions to wives and husbands. What do you do if you're in a mismatched marriage? A marriage that is of two people who perhaps one is walking with God and one is not. One knows Christ, one does not. 
Winning somebody to Christ, the best way is by the conduct and the attitude, the testimony that one gives. For wives, he says, this can be done best by what? A heart that submits to their husband, one that is chaste or pure, one that shows respect, one that cultivates the disposition of a gentle and quiet spirit. For the husband to show her honor as a fellow heir, a partner for life, one that is valued greatly as priceless in your eyes. And when they live godly lives, that testimony is powerful, not only to the life partner that you've pledged yourself to, but as a testimony to watching world. For the world will see. About a year and a half ago, you remember there was a story about some climbers on Mount Hood in Oregon. The three of them had climbed Mount Hood and it was the middle of our windstorm, snowstorm here. And on the mount, mountain in Oregon there, they were caught by a blizzard after reaching the summit. They were forced to take shelter in a snow cave and usually he was able to use his cell phone. One of the men was, but because of the snowstorm it was too severe and they couldn't find out where he was nor for rescuers to come to rescue them. His name was Kelly James, which was one of the climbers. He was a 48-year-old landscape architect, and he was one of the climbers. And he would usually call and tell his wife, Karen, how he was doing and where he was. But because of the storm, because of the blizzard, all three of them died. His body was retrieved later. Katie Kirk on the CBS Evening News interviewed his wife, Karen Karen James. This is what she asked her. She asked her if she was angry that her husband was choosing to climb in the first place. And she said, no, I'm not angry. I'm really sad. Our journey is over for a while. I will miss him terribly. But he loved life so much and he taught me how to love. He taught me how to live and I don't know how you can be angry at someone who loved their family, who loved God and gave back so much more than he took. She was impressed by Karen's faith. And she asked if the family's confidence in God had been tested by her husband's death. Quote, No, it was never tested, Karen answered. I remember one time we were watching TV and Kelly said to me, I can't wait to go to heaven. And I said, What? We were watching some show that had nothing to do with it. And he said, Yeah. That's really going to be cool. And I said, can you hold off? Can we wait? But he wasn't scared. And so those conversations are what I hold on to. To conclude, Katie Couric asked Miss James if there had been any lessons that could have been learned from the tragedy of the death of her husband. And she said, I told a colleague of mine that men should hold their wives really, really tight. Because you don't know when our journey is going to end. My journey ended with an I love you. And for others, if their journey ends with an I love you, it's a lot to hold on to, unquote. Everyone's life will end sometime. Could be ten years from now, could be ten months from now, could be ten days, could be tomorrow. And when people give a eulogy at your funeral, you think to yourself, what would they say about me? How would they remember me? Will they remember the car that I drove, the clothes that I wore, how beautiful I was? Or will they talk about how godly your character was? Or how you served the church, 
how much you respected your husband or how you loved your wife, how you treated your family, and how they speak of you will really be a testimony of your faith in Christ. Because God desires that we have a life that is excellent, that when others look at us, they will say, you know what, I want to be like that person. Their life's not perfect, but you know what? Their life's pointed in the right direction. Maybe they didn't make perfect decisions all of their life, and that's okay, because no one does. There's always grace in life, God's forgiveness, and God's blessings for those who would follow God. But you know what? They're pointed in the right direction, and they're moving in the right direction, and their testimony towards others they treat are a powerful testimony for me that I desire to be more like Christ because of them. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you, Father, for your word, for it gives to us principles of how we are to live, even how we are to dress. And we pray, O God, that by your grace, by your mercy, that you would grant to us grace to live life that would be pleasing to you. And Father, I pray, O God, that you would bless the families that are here, the marriages that are here, and grant to them, Lord, a heart that desires to please you. For you are our God. And I pray, God, that as we do, that you would bless for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.